Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Right now, let's take a look at technology. We have earnings season about to begin in earnest tomorrow with the banks uh, releasing their numbers. And then following that will be a whole host of industries and companies, including technology. Uh, will technology lead us out of uh, this uh, crisis in terms of the market when the market really starts to move up? We've seen a nice rebound here. Uh, where will technology be? There's nobody better to chat about technology and tech stocks than Dan Ives, Managing Director for Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. He joins us on the phone. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense of just over the past month or so, as the markets have gyrated, how has big tech performed? Look, and it's great to be here. Uh, big tech, I think, has performed as well, maybe even better than anyone could have thought in light of the pandemic. I think what you're starting to see is the stronger getting stronger on the other side, the Dark Valley, the Amazons, the Microsofts, some of the large tech players like Facebook included. And I think investors, they're looking onto the other side of the Dark Valley. In other words, where are these stocks, where are the valuations in a normalized, or at least a new normal, 2021 numbers rather than the next quarter or two? And that's why you're seeing a flock to tech stocks, especially even in some of these more defensive plays like a Microsoft. So one thing that you wrote in a note was that the pandemic will further catalyze the massive shift to cloud computing. And I'm wondering to what degree that's already priced in and where isn't it right now? Yeah, I think it's it's starting to get priced in maybe on a Microsoft and some of the larger tech players like an Amazon with the AWS piece. I, I do not think it's priced in really across software. I think you're, you're going to see some of these software names Forget just the Zooms and the Slacks and some of the core applications like Citrix, but underneath a lot of the stack names, the infrastructure, the tech stack, which is really application and SaaS cross software, I think those are names that we continue to see, uh, you know, I think from a re-rating perspective, go higher, as, as I think you see more investors go to those names in terms of the cloud stack. And I think software is going to be a bigger outperformer over the next three to six months, in our opinion. So, Dan, one of the things that's one of the concerns that's been heightened, not just with the, the pandemic here, but also the trade tensions with China months ago, which seems like a, a lifetime ago, is the whole concept of supply chain. Um, how do you think the tech supply chain uh, may change as a result of, again, the pending, the continuous trade uh, tensions with China, but also uh, the pandemic here. Yeah, I think the pandemic, it, it's highlighted, as we've talked about many times, even last year with the U.S.-China trade wars, just how heavily exposed U.S. tech or broader tech, semis, smartphones, is to the supply chain across Asia. And, and as much as there's tough talk, I just don't see that dramatically changing over the next two to three years because as we talked about, there's companies like Apple, they made their bed in China in terms of Foxconn. That's, that is iPhone production. So ultimately, I think if you look at that in semis, you could still see some production potentially move to Vietnam and other parts of Asia. But at least for the foreseeable future, I do not see dramatic changes to the supply chain. The one thing I will say in light of this dark environment, you are starting to see some 
bright spots in the supply chain, which are starting to normalize, I think, quicker than expected by call it early to mid-May. So that's actually where I was going to go. People have been talking about the pitfalls of having a global supply chain. What about the benefits as China reopens, right? I mean, we saw better deliveries than expected, or you're expecting better deliveries with Tesla. And with Apple, you're starting to see some of the factories rev back up. Is this actually a benefit at this point? Yeah. And and, and I think right now is U.S. or European consumers are locked down in their houses, focused on essentials. In China, they're buying iPhones and Teslas. And and I think it speaks to one of the factors that's helping the likes of an Apple, a Tesla, because of Giga3 in China, it is some of that diversification. And you're not just seeing it from a supply chain in terms of for Tesla, Giga3, and for Apple. You're also seeing it from a demand perspective. And I do think that's something where, you know, when you get back to the earlier t- about tech, one of the things that's helping some of these companies is what they're seeing in the supply chain as well as demand throughout China, which I could tell you is starting to rebound pretty significantly even over the last two to three weeks. So, Dan, talk to us about Tesla a little bit here. I mean, there's concerns. I mean, you know, the issue, I'm wondering if consumers are going to be changing their behavior coming out of this uh, pandemic. And one of the areas that people are thinking about is just kind of – the role of the automobile. How's Tesla doing through all of this? Look, and I think you've seen in the stock, especially coming off the better than expected delivery numbers, which were reset lower a few weeks ago for 1Q. You know, bulls in Tesla are looking on the other side of this. Not the next quarter or two, but in terms of EV demand, and Tesla is really starting to gain more and more steam, not just in China, but across Europe. I do think when you talk about just the horrific unemployment, and just what you're seeing just across the consumer landscape, you are seeing a slowdown. And you'll see that. I mean, just to put numbers around it, the street originally was at 530 to 550,000 units for Tesla. Now we're closer to 400 to 415K. But part of why a stock like Tesla continues to outperform is because investors feel like it can navigate it. They obviously raise the cash to get through it from a liquidity perspective. And on the other side of this, could start to thrive from an EV perspective in terms of some of the demand trends. Dan, just real quick here, I'm wondering how the drop-off in oil prices will affect EV demand, given the fact that it's a lot cheaper to fill up your car. Yeah, that's definitely a headwind for EV. Now, some argue Tesla is, is more Teflon-like. I still believe that's a, call it, 5 to 8% headwind in terms of just what you're seeing on oil prices and gasoline prices, especially for new entrants like you're seeing Detroit focus more and more on the battery side and EV. In terms of what's happening with oil and gas, that is an ultimate headwind for EV players. Although, if you look at Tesla and what Musk has been able to do, you know, much better than feared. And that's why you see the stock rallying, even in this dark environment. Dan Ives, thank you so much, of course. Uh, Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities, Managing Director of Equity Research. 
There's an incredible and growing dissonance between the economic data that we're getting with an increasing amount of jobless claims that defy any historical precedent And then markets, which last week had their best rally since 1974 in the United States. And it's led Goldman Sachs strategists to actually revise uh, their estimates for year-end S&P levels upward, saying that they really have faith in the fiscal and the in the monetary policy stimulus that we're seeing. And this really raises a question, how much can you just put blind faith in stimulus at a time when companies are flying blind when it comes to earnings and growth and profitability? Joining us now, uh, we're so lucky to have Hugh Johnson, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors based in Albany. And Hugh, how much do you have conviction in the stimulus that we're seeing out of Washington, D.C., and the Federal Reserve at this point to continue to prop up equity valuations despite the big black hole that is forecasts from companies? Well, we had a positive response last week. You know, when I'm asked a question like that, I have to answer honestly, Lisa, and say I really don't know. I am a bit skeptical because I'm not sure it addresses really well the demand side of this equation. But when I'm asked the question, is it going to work or is it not going to work, I really have to turn to investors. You know, investors tend to get it right. They tend to assess what the outcome is going to be. And the answer we got last week is that the stimulus that we're getting is going to have some impact. Now, it's not going to have any impact on the second quarter, the current quarter, which is going to be the most dismal quarter we've ever seen with GDP being down around 25%. But the real question isn't the second quarter. The real question is third and fourth quarter, and I might add first two quarters of 2021. And I think the answer has to be on balance, based on what I saw from investors last week, is let's say it's going to be a positive impact or we may turn the corner. Maybe not the third quarter, but by the fourth quarter we'll have positive economic growth. So, Hugh, give us just a sense of how you think this federal stimulus is going to really ripple through the economy. Is Are we going to see it on Main Street, those small and mid-sized businesses, the consumers, as Lisa mentioned, the job losses? Are we going to see that impact the real economy? Uh, to some extent, it's going to. I don't know if it's going to be that significant. Take a look at the PPP program and some of the numbers that we're seeing there assuming that we get enough banks and assuming the banks get organized and assuming the banks can make those loans with the small businesses and those loans are going to turn into grants, the demand is right through the roof. Now, what are those businesses going to do? Well, one of the things they're going to do or they're supposed to do is to keep the current employees employed. And hopefully that helps. That's going to help some, but it's not going to help much until we get again to the third or fourth quarter. When we look at the second quarter numbers, as Lisa was was suggesting, the the claims numbers, the loss of jobs in the second quarter, uh, the unemployment rate itself, uh, they're going to be really bad reading, as bad reading as you've ever seen. But third quarter... We might see some results. And there are other programs from the federal government, um, you know, that I I think will have some positive impact. Loans, for example, to to municipalities, counties, and cities that qualify, and you've got to be kind of big to qualify. 
that might help them through some tough times when their revenues from taxes are going to be just about non-existent. So it'll help. It'll help some. It'll get us through a tough period. But the real key is we've got to have uh, businesses come back to work and start to work. And I think we'll start to see that not in the second quarter, but probably the third quarter. We'll see some results in the third quarter. Cross my fingers anyway. So you're buying stocks right now? Well, that's a good question, too. No, that's uh, in some ways it is, and it, it is, yes, we are buying stuff, but we're still maintaining our, our a meaningful, sort of a meaningful allocation to equities. Uh, we did trim uh, our allocation to equities. We cut back international. We cut back small and mid-cap. If an investor comes to us and says, I've got a 50% target for stocks, we're right around that 50% mark. We're not down at 35%, which we'd be if we were really bearish or worried. We're still around 50%. But if you look carefully at the portfolio, you'll see two things. You'll see, one, it's a very defensive portfolio. It emphasizes overweights, if you may, things like healthcare, utilities, staples, the things that do well in a bear market. It overweights stocks with dividends in them. That's its defensive portfolio. But if you look carefully, you'll see we're starting to consider that, look, this bear market is going to end maybe third quarter, maybe first quarter 2021. And when we end a bear market and start a bull market, sometime maybe in 2021, hopefully, stocks that are going to work are the same old ones that always work. And that's technology, consumer discretionary stocks, industrials and materials. We'll start to add a little bit of that now, but not much. We're, let's say, staging in carefully. Staging in. All right. Just like Tom Keene, he's staging into the markets. Hugh Johnson, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer with Hugh Johnson Advisors, uh, based in Albany, New York, giving us uh, his thoughts as to the market. Again, expecting, Lisa, a really, really dismal second quarter in terms of uh, uh, earnings, in terms of GDP growth. And then the question is in everybody's mind right now is to what extent does the economy and does corporate America and the global economy uh, come back? Is it kind of in the third, fourth quarter, or is it something that's pushed out into 2021? That's what investors are trying to get a sense of right now. There's a big question about the Federal Reserve's new bond purchasing program, in particular, their focus on junk debt. A real big question for the first time ever. They're delving into below investment grade credit. Just how low will they go? Is this just a temporary effort meant to stave off some of the fallen angels? Joining us now is RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager of Fixed Income at Federated Hermes. Uh, Joining us, RJ, I'm wondering from your perspective, we saw the biggest rally, the biggest one-day rally in junk debt on on Thursday since the late 1990s. Do you think it's overdone? Do I think it's overdone? That's a great question. Um, I think right now the markets are all markets. <laughs> uh, it was a great week for, uh, for equities too, right? Um, risk assets are responding to the fact that the second derivative, the rate of change or the rate of change in new cases continues to head in a, in a friendly direction. And so... Uh, Risk-taking is coming back. The Fed significantly accelerated that by opening up their buying programs to include high-yield corporate debt, which is a stark change from Federal Reserve history uh, by any metric. Um, the, the sharp move was dramatic. Our, our traders were recounting uh, dramatic market conditions sharply higher. You can see it in ETFs. You can see it in bonds. I think the 
the goal of the Fed has been all along to make market functioning less of an issue. And by every metric, whether you're looking at weekly rates in munis, whether you're looking at commercial paper rates, whether you're looking at bill rates, they've all moved in a direction to say markets are functioning better. Treasuries, munis, corporates, etc. Now, the focus looking forward will be the broader fundamental ramifications on credit, defaults, downgrades, etc. So, a little overdone, a little emotional? Eh, maybe. But I think we're facing with a, faced with a lot of uncertainty. We're moving beyond the point where markets were dysfunctional, now to the point of assessing fundamentals as we go through a likely U-shaped economic recovery. You're saying, you know, that, that there is a support here. There is a question about fundamentals. What are you expecting, RJ, when it comes to defaults? And how much of that has been priced in? Well, first on the fundamentals, I, I think there's a high level of uncertainty, and you can see it in Bloomberg's own data. You do the... Um, uh, ECFC, for those who are in front of a terminal, uh, the economic forecast, and, and the median forecast for Q2 GDP is a loss, negative uh, 22.3%. The range is as high as a, lo- uh, de- a decline of 65%, with some still suggesting a high of a little bit of growth. So a huge level of uncertainty exists. And, and it, it, I, I almost hate the phrase, markets don't like uncertainty. I think it's a silly phrase. Markets don't like high levels of uncertainty and shifts in the level of uncertainty in short periods of time. There's always uncertainty about the future. It's when it's extreme, intense, and wide. And right now, it's extreme, intense, and wide. So spreads uh, are are wide. There was a sharp sell-off, especially in March, as markets were dysfunctional and the recession was setting in. Um, We believe that there will be elevated default rates. We haven't put a number on it because I think – there's uh, sharp discrepancies across sectors. Uh, in addition to the recession, we have the oil price war that now seems to be calming down somewhat. Um, I think safe to say, as a firm, we went into this crisis underweight high yield, not because we thought COVID-19 was going to get as bad as it has, but because valuation had gotten extraordinarily tight, not, and it wasn't compensating you for the uncertainties of the future. Those uncertainties became profound and very difficult, as we now know. We've been actually starting to add to our weight and high yield in our multi-sector portfolios, although we still remain slightly underweight. Why? Because of the uncertainties I just described. The fundamentals are still unclear. The sector ramifications are going to be vast and divergent. Oil in particular is a tough one. Um, And so we still think some caution is warranted. But over time, as some of that uncertainty fades, as evidenced by falling VIX and, and, and just the passage of time as we see real data as opposed to fear of said data, then I wouldn't be shocked if we continue to incrementally move and get more constructive on high yield based upon valuation and as we see things unfold. RJ, what is what is your expectation for credit quality across your portfolio? I mean, it's we're just in the, obviously the very very early stages here, but you know, if you, some of those GDP numbers uh, come to fruition, uh, really going to be a pressure on a lot of balance sheets. How are you thinking about that? Well, the interesting thing is that everybody in the market, whether they're in your role covering the market from an analytical or journalistic standpoint or from our role as being investment managers, we've never quite seen something as profound as this. We've had a global financial crisis. I was around for that. We were around for the, the you know, other recessions. I've been in the business one way or another since 1991. But nobody in the business has seen a 25% decline in GDP. Uh, you know, I think GDP contracted at a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 8.3%, I think it was, uh, during the, uh, the 2008 recession. So this could be like three times deeper. Um, but what's different about then and now 
is that this was in response to an exogenous shock, not an endogenous financial crisis, which too much leverage in the housing bubble was an endogenous financial crisis back then. So if we can ramp back up with the huge amount of policy support, the $2.3 trillion in the CARES Act, the Fed's myriad of programs from high yield to munis to treasuries to mortgages, um, if these cushions are, are strong enough to give us enough of a bounce, um, then you have to believe that, that the bottom will be this quarter, the quarter we're currently in. Um, Q3 is debatable. Whether we have a little bit more of a contraction in, 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 the, in the economy or not is a debatable prospect. But over time, as you start to reintroduce, and if the virus behaves reasonably well as we do reintroduce economic activity of all kinds of sorts that right now has largely been tabled in many areas, um, then you have to believe that, that this is like a big bridge loan to the economy. The CARES Act, the Fed, it's all a big bridge loan to the economy to try to get us to a better day. Will it work? Will it not work? It's not totally clear. There's clearly optimism in the markets over the last week that it will work. Um, back to the original question, that might have been a little bit overdone. We, we have yet to see the earnings destruction. We have yet to see the fundamental data. Downgrades are coming. Uh, defaults will be ar- rising. I think it's very difficult to sit here and start pinpointing which names and which, uh, which individual sectors in which you anticipate them. But it's obvious that some sectors are more challenged than others. And this is what you have an analyst staff for. This is the time for active management. This is, you know, Federated is an active manager. We're not a passive manager. We don't run bond index funds. Sorry, RJ. Once again, we're going to have to just cut in right now. Uh, We thank you so much for your commentary right now. We're going to go to New York State uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo. And that was RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Federated Termes. Time for Bloomberg Opinion. We are joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Liam Denning. He covers all things on the energy front. And Liam, we had over the weekend um, this opinion agreement by OPEC uh, plus about $10 million, uh, 10 million barrels per day cut in production. President Trump just tweeting just this morning that it may be as much as 20 million barrels a day. What do we know about this agreement and does it, what does it really mean for the global oil markets? I mean, I've, I've always characterized this agreement as really uh, OPEC plus and certain other players, including uh, President Trump, you know, really trying to get ahead of um, what is actually just an inevitable um, issue, which is that they're going to have to cut uh, supply. If, um, if uh, demand is down by, you know, roughly a third by some estimates, then that means, you know, refiners stop buying crude oil um, because customers aren't buying it. And that means if you're a producer um, and refiners aren't taking it, you have to find a place to store it. And, uh, you know, we could be running out of storage at current rates, um, you know, sometime within a month or two, and that's when prices would, you know, crash into single digits. So this this agreement to cut is, is I see, as, as kind of a, a veneer of control on a, on a pretty uncontrollable situation. A veneer of control. I'm trying to understand the numbers, especially given the estimates that you highlight, which is that we could run out of storage within weeks, and yet this agreement isn't going to go into effect until May 1st, technically, although a lot of the May barrels have already been sold in the in the futures market. So how much are we actually going to cut? Can we avoid breaching capacity of some of these storage facilities? Well, I think that's certainly the aim, and I think it's a bit too early to, to say just yet. And, and look, I mean, in the end, as I say, OPEC Plus has to cut supply. Um, there is no other thing they can do. So I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing 
that they um, kind of put it in the context of this agreement. But essentially what they're trying to do, if I can borrow an analogy that's you know, quite prominent at the moment, is they're trying to flatten the curve, essentially, um, rather than... They can't um, co-opt that. No, that's, yeah, that's, you know, that's stuck for pandemic talk. Carry on now. Thank you. Uh, you know, and it, instead of running out of ICU beds, they're going to run out of tanker space and, and a commodity that runs out of tanker space that you can't just dump. Um, you know, essentially, you're going to have to start paying people to take it off your hands. I mean, just to put this in context, my estimates on Friday had, even under a best-case scenario with this cut, um, another 500 million barrels going into storage within the space of, you know, a couple of months. Now, if we go back to the crash in 2014, that amount of oil went into inventory, but that happened over the course of about two years, and that was enough to do serious damage to the oil market. Now we're talking about that happening in the space of weeks. So, Liam, where is America in terms of oil production here? Um, I seem to remember about 13 million barrels a day. Is the American shale producers going to be reducing their output? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is happening already, and you can see it in what's happening with the numbers in terms of uh, fracking crews that are being deployed. I mean, that's coming down at an enormous rate already. And if you think about it, those are the guys and the, the you know, and the equipment that actually completes the wells that get drilled. And if they're coming off um, as companies try to conserve cash, shale's natural decline rate means that it will start to uh, come off quite quickly. I would say if it hasn't started to come off by the end of this quarter, almost certainly in the third quarter we will start to see it and it will begin to accelerate. So, you know, going into that meeting on Friday, obviously the U.S. was talking about, uh, you know, contributing cuts, but these are cuts that were going to come anyway. It's not being done as an act of will. It's just a natural a result of prices crashing. Yeah, which which raises the uh, question of the Texas Railroad Commission, which evidently holds a lot of power suddenly, uh, or people are looking to their meeting tomorrow. It, will it be the first time since the 1970s that they curb aggressively Texas output of shale? What do you expect? I'm skeptical that we're going to see a lot out of that, partly because the most vocal proponent of it, um, of, of the commission doing something, Ryan Sitton is actually a lame duck commissioner. Um, and we've seen disagreement playing out on Twitter, of course, um, between the commissioners as to what would happen. You also really need to get, in a, in a sort of miniature version of OPEC, you need to get several state regulators to agree to, to, to curb output, um, because otherwise you'll have that similar dynamic where Texas may feel it curbs and, and other states jump in to take market share. And I think that's one thing that people are missing about this whole thing in general. It, the battle for market share hasn't gone away. You know, we saw that most, most um, prominently with the fact that there was this long argument with Mexico over what was in the end a rounding error on the cut and the fact that we saw Saudi Arabia cut its official selling prices yeah. to Asia last night. It just shows you that even if they're temporarily trying to support prices, the, the, the essential battle for market share in this oil market isn't going away. Liam Denning, thank you so much for being with us. Liam Denning is an energy columnist with Bloomberg Opinion. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 